remarkable. Uh, this huge amount of painstaking, loving, um, beautifully wrought work that went into it. And uh, some of the local residents uh, have spent time going through those 86 names from 100 years ago, knowing that all of them in one way or another had a connection to this parish, as small a parish as it was then, many of them who lived in this network of roads, Newry Road and Halliburton Road and Northcote Road and Talbot Road and Eve Road and Steel Road. Um, and they went through census records, they've been through the Commonwealth War Graves Commission uh, records, they've been through births, deaths and marriages records and um, have traced probably two-thirds of those men to particular houses, particular front doors uh, in the roads around here. Uh, to men who lived next door to each other, who died uh, a year apart, uh, to people who lived across the street from each other, who must have known each other and went to war together. And the number of households that counted this as their spiritual home, who would a hundred years ago have been gathering, not as we do now on Remembrance Sunday, but just on a Sunday in the midst of war, who would have been hoping that it'll be over by Christmas as was the hope, and who would find that Christmas and the one after and the one after that and the one after that, that it was far from over. 86, just from this little parish. Um, Stephen and I uh, took a trip to um, the uh, area around Ypres. I'd, Craig, I wonder whether we can have the, um, the images up on the screen. That would be great if we can. Um, over the summer and um, he was going to miss a school trip that was uh, going to be going there so we went instead and uh, we spent two days around um, as we call it Ypres as the, um, the uh, allied soldiers for the most part called it Wipers and uh, Wipers or Ypres is an absolutely beautiful um, town if you ever get a chance to visit I'd urge you to it's only an hour hour's drive from Calais so it's not difficult and um, in and around it are cemeteries and battlefields and museums um, relating to um, the First World War. And remarkably, it wasn't a dismal or uh, an overwhelmingly sombre uh, two days. It was certainly remarkable. It was certainly um, something we'll never forget. But one of the things that really struck both of us uh, was these incredible um, cemeteries that are, for the most part, looked after by the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission. This is Tyne Cot. Tyne Cot isn't very far from Ypres. And in Tyne Cot are buried 12,000 uh, Allied soldiers, uh, only 2,000 of whom were identified, another 10,000 of whom were buried but never named. On the walls around are the names of some 30,000 more who were uh, uh, memorialised there, but whose bodies were never identified or found. If you were then to go into the centre of Ypres, you'll find the Menin Gate. And in the Menin Gate are tens and tens of thousands of more names of men and boys uh, who died uh, as part of the Allied forces and whose bodies were never found, who were, uh, uh, never had a gravestone. Stephen late one night after we'd listened to the last post being played, as it is at eight o'clock every evening in Menin. Uh, and uh, we spent a little bit of time looking for some of these 86. And we found one. I think this next picture um, is of uh, one of the 
uh, soldiers, and uh, he had emigrated to Canada and was fighting for a Canadian regiment and died and was buried on the South Menin Road, just south of Ypres, and uh, we found uh, his grave. The symbol uh, of remembrance is a poppy. Uh, these were poppies we found growing on the top of the trenches um, just about uh, 10 minutes north of Ypres on what the, uh, the Belgian soldiers uh, called the Trench of Death because it was such a terrible place to go. At the end of this trench, you can just see the top of the trench there. I'm sorry, I'm pointed down here. You see it up here, I guess. Um, at the, you can just see the top of the trench there, and you can still walk along the trench today. And at the end, just and no more than 100 metres away, less than that, really from here to the font, was the German um, pillbox. So from the Allied trench to the German position was no more than the, less than length of this church. And what struck me um, with great force over these two days, and has struck me again as I've prepared my sermon for today, is that we end up with this almost unbearable tension between the reality of a world that is uh, just unarguably torn apart by the inhumanity of human beings to one another, where daily around the world and back through history, human beings are simply inhuman to one another. And yet at the same time, we're pulled the other direction by wanting to live lives that aren't uh, destroyed by it. We want to live lives of hope. We want to live lives of good intention. We want to live lives that are joyful. We want to pass on to our children not a dismal sense of the world's gone to hell in a um, cart. We want to hand on to our children a sense of hope that the world can be different, that human beings can be good to one another. So how do we live with that tension? What are we to do with a world that looks like we've just been remembering and yet believe that there is a God who loves us and who gives us hope in the midst of it? And where I want to take us to is a passage in the prophet Isaiah. I hope if you've got a Bible in front of you, you might turn with me to it. It's on page 685. 685. Thank you, Craig. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And your page, find actually on page 626. Isaiah lived some 750 years before Jesus. He lived in the southern part of God's ancient people, Israel, in what became known as Judah, in the midst of which was the holy Mount Zion and Jerusalem and the temple, which together symbolised for God's ancient people God's covenant love, that God had publicly and legally almost, bound himself in love to his ancient people. And he'd given them a promised land, the land of Israel. He'd given them to them Mount Zion and Jerusalem and the temple that symbolised and focused, if you like, his presence with them. And he'd given them a job to do. And the job that he'd given them to do was simply this, to be a light 
in a dark world. To be a people that drew people to God. To be like a magnet or a light in a dark place that draws the eye, that draws the heart, that draws people to a better place. God's ancient people were given the task of living out the life of God's kingdom in the midst of a broken world. They were given the task of being different. That's why there were the Ten Commandments. That's why there were all the laws. Not because God's a killjoy, quite the opposite, but because God wanted them to live the best life you could possibly live to give the world a vision of what it looks like to live under God's kingdom rule. That's what the covenant was about. I will love you, and you in loving me back will show the world what it is to be loved by God so that everyone can know me. God's people, ancient Israel, weren't meant to wear it as a badge of pride. They weren't meant to go, hey, look at us, we're God's chosen ones. They were meant to say, we're God's chosen ones so that the whole world will know that they are subjects of God's love. But actually, as we know, and we've heard time and again, there was this dreadful cycle of boom and bust. God's people would get it right for a few years. They'd follow the prophets and their kings. They'd see God at work. They'd worship him, and then they'd get proud. Or they'd get fearful. Those are the two things that kept happening in again and again. Proud because they thought they were getting it right. Fearful when things didn't go quite as they planned. And one way or another, they turned their backs on God. They abandoned the job God had given them to do. They wore this gift, this blessing, as a badge of pride, like they had achieved something rather than that God had achieved everything. And far from looking at the nations around them going, come in to God's holy place, come and know God for yourselves, they went, you haven't got God, we have. And the prophets had to use very harsh language to make them uh, sort of stand up and take notice, to, to show them that there was something going wrong here. And actually what God had to do was to allow them to reap the consequences of their actions. He had to let them see that they were part of the problem of the world, not its solution. And so what you find in Isaiah chapter 1 on page 685 is that the prophet Isaiah, speaking God's words to God's southern kingdom, has to say to them, you need to know what it is you've done. Verse 4, our sinful nation a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. He doesn't mince his words. And he says to them, you you know what you've seen the northern kingdom reap? They'd been swept into, uh, into exile by the Babylonians. They'd been virtually wiped out as a nation. That's going to come to you, O Judah. This is coming your way. And this is what it's going to be like. Verse 7 of chapter 1. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields being stripped by foreigners. Right before you laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Isaiah has to warn them. This is what's coming your way. If you choose this path, because those are the consequences. And after a chapter of, if you like, rubbing their nose in the consequences of a world that is broken apart by humans turning their back on God, he then comes to these stunning words at the beginning of chapter 2, page 686. Let me read them for you. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, 
the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So how are we to live in this tension between what we know is true about our broken and at times desolate world, and yet what we also know is true, that we have a sense of hope and of joy and of life that we want to live out. How are we to live in that tension? Well, we're to take full-hearted knowledge of both bad news, if you like, from Isaiah, and good news. And the bad news is simply this. The world is broken. It's real. And you're to blame. And I'm to blame. It's what chapter one is all about. We aren't to live with our eyes shut. We are to take full knowledge of a broken world. Christians, of all people, should be the last to pretend the world's a lovely place all the time. The Bible is full of sound and fury, full of lament, full of tears, full of anguish, full of, full of yelling at God, screaming at God, why have you forsaken me? A world is broken. The world is not as it's meant to be. It is torn apart by hatred and violence, by the inhumanity of humans to one another. We're meant to live with that reality. It's why it's appropriate that Remembrance Sunday is something that we recognise in church. We're not simply trying to be the civic church, the church of the nation. We're recognising along with all God's people everywhere, this is what the world is like, at least some of the time. But even harder than that, what Isaiah says to God's people and what the scriptures say to all people everywhere all of the time is, and it's your fault. It's my fault. This isn't somebody else's problem. You and I may not be the dictator on the throne of some country that triggers a war. We may not be the person that pulls the trigger. We may not be the person dropping the bomb. But we are complicit in a world that turns its back on God and says, we know best. My life counts more than anybody else. My comfort, my financial security, my ambitions, my dreams count more than those of the poor, those of the destitute, those who are always, always at the raw end of conflict, far more than the rich and the privileged. We're part of it. It is our fault. See, God's people, ancient Israel, were inclined to believe that actually all the problems in the world simply happened to them, that they were victims, 
And when you read the prophets, you find again and again, they are incredibly blunt in saying to them, no, 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 you get it wrong. You've actually got more responsibility than anyone else because you know what God is like. You know how the world's meant to be. You of all people have no excuse. You should be the ones making peace. You should be the ones making the world better. You should be the ones making a difference. So of all people, you have least excuse, say the prophets. Time and again, God's people have less excuse, not more excuse. There was a famous interchange of letters in the Times uh, many decades ago about what's the problem with the world. And a very famous Christian, and I'm very embarrassed that this is about to appear on a podcast for, forever and I've forgotten which one it was. I think it was G.K. Chesterton, um, but I'll go through and edit it later if I was wrong. Um, wrote to the Times, you can still find his letter online today, um, and in response to this series of letters over many weeks that was, what's, the, what's wrong with the world? He simply wrote, dear sir, I am. You're sincerely. Dear sir, I am. You're sincerely. One very famous Christian writer who lived through the persecution of Christians uh, in the Soviet Union, Soviet era, who of all people might have had an excuse to feel he was a victim, wrote, there is a fault line that lies through the heart of humanity and it goes through the heart of every human heart. We are all responsible. We are all part of the problem. We cannot make this world perfect. It doesn't matter how many utopian schemes the world has ever dreamt up, at every point in history you find that they go bust. You don't have to be much of a student of history to see that cycle again and again of worldwide optimism or of a particular culture being terribly optimistic that this time we are going to solve the world's problems through technology or through world government or whatever it is. And time again we discover that actually we cannot do it for ourselves. That is bad news. But Isaiah says once you've got your head and heart around the bad news of a world that is broken and where you and I are at fault then we're ready to receive the good news. And the good news is that God's covenant is always fulfilled the same way. We were thinking about this two weeks ago, that God's covenant is fulfilled by God coming round to our side of the table and doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In Jesus, he lives the life we could not live, the Prince of Peace. In Jesus, he dies the death that we could not survive. In Jesus, he brings to life that life that we could not acquire for ourselves. God brings peace that we cannot bring to this world. He fulfills our half of the covenant. He loves us. He comes around to our side of the table and alongside us gives us love in return. And that's where this wonderful promise, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, in the last days, the Bible is univocal consistent in saying there will come a day when God draws a line under history, when God says enough is enough, where God remakes heaven and earth and brings the two together. So there will be no more gap, no more gulf, chasm between us and our heavenly father. The dwelling of God will be with men and women and men and women will see him face to face, says the book of Revelation. 
And in remaking a new heaven and a new earth, we have this wonderful picture here in Isaiah, in the words of Jesus, in the book of Revelation, and scattered through the Bible, where God brings peace. And if you, did you click, as I was reading it, how the words that Isaiah uses were to say to God's people, ancient Israel, look, what God's going to do when he remakes it all is to fulfill what he promised he was going to do through you. So God promised that through you, you would draw all nations to God. And they would come to you to hear what God was like. They would come to you to learn how to live. They would come to you because you would shine like a light on a hilltop. And what does Isaiah promise? Verse 2. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everything that God promised he would do through Israel... He does through that true Israel, Jesus. God promises. It's a promise. It's a promise. This isn't hope as in, I hope it doesn't rain today. This isn't hope as in, I I hope that I succeed in my career or I hope my kids pass their exams. This is a sure and certain hope that one day God will draw a line onto history and will remake heaven and earth. So how then should we live? It's there in verse 5. Come, O house of Jacob, people of God, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We are to live our lives now in the light of what is to come. Because of the sure and certain hope of what God will do then, we are to live now as the advanced party. God promises light in the darkness fully then. And the New Testament talks of us being to be like stars shining in a dark generation. God is going to bring peace then. And so Jesus preaches that blessed are the peacemakers because we live out the kingdom of God now. People are meant to get a taste, a sight, a glimpse of what God is going to do then in the midst of history now. And whether that's you bringing peace in your family, whether that's you bringing peace with a friend, whether that's you bringing peace in your company or in your workplace, whether that's you bringing peace on a world stage, whatever it is God calls you to, part of your Christian duty is to be a bringer of God's peace. Not because we are silly enough to imagine that that these utopian dreams of us doing it all for ourselves are ever going to happen, but because we know we can't and we know God will. And we are God's people. It's what God calls us to. To live out, as much as we're able with his help, the life of the world to come right here, right now, in the middle of history as it is. There is good news. There is good news that one day God will put all things right. There is good news that we have genuine motivation to live as peacemakers, not with a utopian idea that we're going to make it all right, nor with some sort of unrealistic whistling in the dark, 
Let's pretend the world's a lovely place, but with a confidence that as we understand the bad news of a world that is broken and it's our fault, that we believe the good news, that because of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, because of the Prince of Peace, he will one day bring all wars to an end. And they will turn their swords into plowshares. Nation will not take up sword against nation. And you and I get, out, get to live out the truth of that here and now, in our homes and schools and workplaces and local communities. And if we're not, then we're living as though God is a liar and that we don't believe what he will one day do. That's why we come to communion. And as we come to communion, we come with empty hands. I'm always saying that. Because of those empty hands, it just reminds us that we've got nothing to bring. But we do have empty hands to receive. And as we receive the peace that Jesus won for us on the cross, we receive the power to live out that life as peacemakers. Can I ask you, please, if you're able to stand as we come to communion? It's always right to give you thanks, God our Father, holy and strong, King forever. You made us and the whole universe and filled your world with life. You sent your Son to live among us, Jesus, Saviour, Mary's child. He suffered on the cross and died to save us from our sins. He rose in glory from the dead. You send your Spirit to bring new life to the world and fill us with power from on high. And so we join the angels to celebrate and sing, saying together, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Father, on the night before he died, Jesus shared a meal with his friends and took bread and thanked you. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, take this and eat it. This is my body given for you. Do this to remember me. After the meal, Jesus took the cup of wine and thanked you. He gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood, the new promise of God's love. Do this to remember me. Jesus Christ has died. Jesus Christ has died. Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ will come again. Jesus Christ will come again. So, Father, as we remember his death and resurrection, send your Holy Spirit that the bread and wine we bring before you may be for us Christ's body and his blood. Pour your Spirit on us that we may love one another as we work for the peace of the earth and wait for Jesus to come in glory. For honour and praise belong to you, Father, with Jesus, your Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. We sit to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. We break this bread to share in the body of Christ. Though we are many, we are one body, because we all share in one bread. So draw near with faith. Receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ.